0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. It's uh, been a couple of months since I was here last, and it's my joy and privilege to bring you God's Word on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, As we get started, I wonder if you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 95. I want to begin by looking at the first seven verses of Psalm 95. Now we just had a a call to worship here uh, this morning that came from Psalm 47. Uh, In my home church, we use all sorts of calls to worship. The Psalms are often uh, a rich place to find calls to worship, and one of the calls to worship that I use frequently, and maybe uh, it's used here more frequently as well, uh, are the opening words of Psalm 95. Uh, I'm guessing that's the case here. Uh, But if you just take a look at Psalm 95, you can see why it is such a, a fitting call to worship. Look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Familiar words, right? Now, At the same time, I wonder, and I suspect actually, that Psalm 95 verses 8 to the end are never used as a call to worship at Blessings Christian Church. That's a theory that I have, and you can prove me wrong afterwards. There's a huge shift in this psalm, in verses 8 through 11. It's a shift, if you have your Bibles with you, you can see it seems incongruent. It seems out of place from what we've just heard in the opening verses. It seems incompatible, it moves from this wonderful invitation, this summons, this subpoena to come and worship, to sing, to make a joyful noise to the Lord, and then it shifts to this somber warning about judgment, judgment on the disobedient. But Christianity is, is sometimes full of paradoxes, isn't it? And sometimes the life of faith is sitting somewhere in that tension between two seemingly contradictory positions. If you just reflect for a moment and and let these two halves be held together in the one psalm, you'll begin to see that the second half of Psalm 95, it reveals a deeper truth about the essence of true worship. The point of the psalmist is that God doesn't just want your songs. He wants them but He doesn't just want your songs. He wants your entire being. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your obedience. Now, obedience is a word that comes back and forth, uh, back in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Obedience, let's call it faith this morning. He wants your obedience. And so God doesn't just want your songs unless He has your heart. And you can think of a a couple of instances in the Bible where this comes out again. Isaiah 29 verse 13 is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 15 when He's uh, being antagonized and confronted by the Pharisees. And uh, there He says, "'This people, they draw near to Me with their mouth, and they honor Me with their lips.'" while their hearts are far from me. Now think of today. I don't know a lot of you here, and I certainly don't know what is living in your heart this morning, but you have come and you are here for worship this morning. But how many people attend weekly worship on Sundays They exhibit outward enthusiasm, they sing with gusto, and yet their hearts actually are dead and cold and faithless. Their passionate songs of praise, at least to you and me, they mask a life of sin and a life of rebellion. Now, Derek Kidner writes a commentary on the book of Psalms, and this is what he says. If this is a psalm about worship, it could give no blunter indication that the heart of the matter is severely practical, nothing than bending the wills and a renewal of pilgrimage. And so the good shepherd... Uh, The rock of our salvation, Psalm 95 calls him that. He doesn't just want people to sing praises to his name. He wants a flock that trusts him. He wants a flock that listens to his voice. He wants a flock that finds its rest in him. That's the essence of true worship. All of these things combined. Now this morning we have in front of us Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7 and proceeding all the way into chapter 4, verse 13. It's a long section. I'll, I'll admit that, and I'll, I hope it's not going to be too long of a sermon. But it's a powerful passage here. I've been working through the book of Hebrews in my home church. I'm somewhere in Hebrews 9 now, Hebrews 10, uh, in a series called Jesus is Better. Uh, but in these verses that we have in front of us, the author is hes already mid-stride. In demonstrating again and again again, the supremacy of Jesus over everything. The title of my series is Jesus is Better. You can fill in whatever you want, and Jesus is Better. Uh, In in the chapter that we have in front of us here, he methodically works through Psalm 95 and its implications for his audience, and, and that includes you and me today. It's easily the most elaborate of the many Psalm references in the book of Hebrews. There are lots of them. If you turn to chapter two, there's a whole bunch there. But here he spends almost two chapters working through Psalm 95. And it makes our task this morning a little bit unique because we have Hebrews three and four in front of us, but it's a chapter in the Bible about a song in the Bible and it's actually a song in the Bible about a narrative in the Bible. It's about Numbers 14. And so there's a bunch of things that are going on here. But as we thread the needle from uh, yesteryear through to the cross, through to today, we can't help but notice, again, the author is arguing for the greaterness of Jesus, the greaterness, the betterness of Jesus. And here's the underlying thought, thinking back, if, if you have your Bibles, just look at Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Here he's speaking especially about the betterness of Jesus over Moses. If you look at the first six verses, you'll see that Moses, he functions in some way typologically. He's a mediator of the Old Covenant. He he prefigures Jesus in his mediatory role. And if that's true, then all the events of the Exodus as well, they function typologically. They point forward to the coming of Jesus. Uh, To make it explicit, God, through Moses, delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he led them for 40 years in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. Jesus delivers us from slavery to sin, and today he leads the church by his word and his spirit as we pilgrimage to the promised land, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, take a look at verse 7 in chapter 3. The typological connection, it continues. I have the ESV in front of me. I think the NIV says so. Uh, In the Greek, it's therefore. He's coming to a sort of a a conclusion. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, really quickly, before we move on, I, I, I want you just to take a look at that verse. Look at the first words there. This is another one of these Verses that we can read past so quickly, but it is proof for the divine inspiration of Holy Spirit, of the, of, of the Holy Spirit, of, of the Scriptures. The author is writing that the Holy Spirit says this in Psalm 95. Now, later in chapter 4, verse 7, he's going to say that David says it. But we know when we read the whole of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is, is breathed out by God. God uses humans to write down His inspired, infallible, perfect Word. The Spirit is the underlying author of this psalm. These are authoritative words for us today. Now, the second thing of note is the verb tense in the beginning of verse 7 there. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. It's not the Holy Spirit said It's in the present tense. So here's a a point of application for all of us as we're getting into this passage. Psalm 95 is written thousands of years ago, maybe a 1,000 years before Jesus, so 3,000 years ago. And what the author says in Psalm 95, it's as if he's writing it to you and me this morning. "'Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says.'" And that gives an, an immediacy, it gives an urgency to the words that we have in front of us. It's like an exclamation point before we even get into the psalm. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, so listen up, the Spirit is speaking to you and me this morning, and what is he saying? Look at, look at Hebrews 3, verses 8 through 11. This is just a quote of the psalm. Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11, he says, today, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, and therefore I was provoked with that generation, and they said, said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." There are a number of events that Psalm 95 could be referencing. When you read through the book of Exodus and Numbers, the people of Israel are always complaining. They're always grumbling against the Lord. It seems as though the author is speaking more specifically about Numbers chapter 14, especially if you look at verses 16 through 19 in Hebrews chapter 3. Now, this is a heartbreaking moment in the story of Israel, A chapter earlier in Numbers 13, Israel stood on the border of the promised land. Israel was about to receive her inheritance from God. So before they go in, they send 12 12 spies into the land. 10 of them return with a majority report, and they say, yeah, the land is beautiful. It's flowing with milk and honey, but the people are giants. We can't do this. And then Caleb and Joshua come and they say, yeah, they're huge, but God is bigger. Let's do this. We can take the promised land with God at our side, with God leading us. We will overcome, but the people will not listen in Numbers chapter 13. And so we read in Numbers 14 verses 2 through 4, and the people grumbled. People grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? They're saying Egypt is better, Egypt is better. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader And go back to Egypt. So their sinful rebellion in Numbers 14, it it kindles. You can just imagine a flame that all of a sudden ignites. It, It kindles the wrath of God, the holy anger of God. And if you have Numbers 14 in front of you, look at verses 27 through 30. God is exasperated with this people. He has shown them nothing but grace upon grace, and he will show them grace upon grace, but in this moment, he is fed up, and he says, how long will this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me, say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. In 1905, George Santayana famously remarked, those who cannot remember the past are condemned To repeat it. And in essence, this is the warning of Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. The the author is writing to baby Christians. These are Hebrew Christians who had been delivered from slavery, not in Egypt, but slavery to sin at the cross of Jesus. Uh, These are Christians who are facing a crisis of faith. These are Christians who are doubting God's provision when life becomes difficult. These are Christians that are facing pressure to return to Egypt, not literal Egypt, but spiritual Egypt, Judaism, instead of trusting in Jesus. I wanna ask you this morning, what, what Egypt are you being tempted to turn back to this morning? Life's not always easy. It's not easy today. It wasn't easy 2,000 years ago or 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. What Egypt is there that you think is better when you're facing difficulties as a Christian? There's a bunch of them. I can list a couple of them. Enslavement to works-based righteousness. Enslavement to moralism moral improvement, enslavement to materialism, money and possessions, enslavement to the wisdom and and methods of this world. You know how tempting that is today that in this highly politicized culture of outrage, the church is being told we need to stand up and we do need to stand up, but how do we do that? What Egypt is there in your life? So after citing Psalm 95, the author writes in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Uh, This is a warning that is not unlike the warning of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where the Apostle Paul is also looking back on Israel's past disobedience. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse six, Paul says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In both Hebrews 3, and chapter four, in both that section and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the point is crystal clear. You will not find God in Judaism anymore. Jesus is the better way. And to reject Jesus, to reject his care, to reject his promises, whether it's by turning to Judaism or to any other Egypt that we're being tempted to turn today, it is the epitome of evil. God calls them a wicked generation. The, the turning away, in the Greek, it's apostasy. It's turning away from Jesus. It's a turning away from the living God, the living Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So the author, he continues, look at verses 13 and 14 in chapter 3. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. These verses, they're they're speaking about perseverance. They're speaking about holding our confidence, our faith in Jesus to the very end, really to the border of the promised land, to the end of our lives. Uh, Later in Hebrews chapter 12, we see uh, the same kind of imagery uh, used with different words. It speaks about running the race of faith. Let us run. But the issue, whether it's Hebrews 12 or Hebrews chapter 3, it's the same, It's framed not so much as, did you believe or do you believe? Those are important questions. But the question really is, will you believe? Will you be faithful? Will you still be walking with Jesus at the end of your life? Now, there's more. It says that persevering is done in Christian community. We don't like to hear that, do we? We want to do our own thing by nature. We are individualists. Uh, We get offended if people get into our business and start telling us what they think about what we're doing as as they point out sin. The race of faith is an individual exercise. I can't run the race of faith for you. Uh, You can't run it for your children. You can't run it for me. We each need to run the race of faith. But the race of faith is not done in isolation. It is done in community. Look at verse 13. Exhort one another. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see that? Sin is deceitful. It's smarter than you. It's smarter than me. Sin is deceitful. Don't be fooled. Confess your sins to one another, is what the author is saying here. David Garland writes a commentary on the book of Hebrews. He says, The author is aware that the spiritual health of the group depends on the attitude of each individual within it. So they need to be concerned, not only for themselves, but also for each other, keeping each other up to the mark, reminding each other of the psalmist's warning. So here's an application. We need church discipline. As we say in Belgic Confession 29, it's one of the marks of the true church. It's applying the word to each other's lives. In essence, we need church discipline because it is so easy for individual Christians like me to be led into sin. When we are sinning, we tend to rationalize it and justify it, don't we? We know this from experience. Uh, We've seen too many isolated Christians hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. After all, like Psalm 95 says in the first verses, we are sheep. And that tells us we're not terribly intelligent. We're kind of defenseless. and So by necessity, if we are to persevere in the faith then we need, first of all, the protection of the good shepherd. We need the protection of the rock, Psalm 95. We need to live in community. We need to be among the flock of God. That's called spiritual accountability. Exhort one another. Do not be misled by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, why is this all so important? It's important because it is urgent. This is a word that comes up again and again in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews 3 and 4, today. Today, not tomorrow. The point is, tomorrow is too late. There is a time limit on grace. So the road to hell, we, we sometimes say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. No, what the author is saying here, the road to hell is paved with spiritual procrastination. Don't presume on God's kindness and his long-suffering. That's part of the deceitfulness of sin. I've got tomorrow. I'll smarten up in a year. Christ might come back today. He might return while we're worshiping. How awesome would that be? Some of us might die today. Some of us might get killed in a car accident this week. We don't know. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts because you may not have tomorrow. If you wait till tomorrow, it may be too late. And if you're not right with God through faith in Christ, That's a terrifying prospect. In 1888, an Anglican preacher named J.C. Ryle wrote a book called The Upper Room. Uh, You can find it on Google. It's it's in PDF form. Chapter 19 is entitled, Thoughts for Young Men. Uh, But his words, they apply to young women, old men, old women, kids, doesn't matter. This is what J.C. Ryle writes. He says, do not be deceived. Do not think that you can at will serve the lusts and pleasures in your beginning when you're young and then go and serve God with ease at your latter end. Do not think that you can live with Esau and then die with Jacob, as in live outside of the covenant and then die within the covenant. It is a mockery to deal with God and your souls in such a fashion. It is an awful mockery, and you may find to your cost the thing cannot be done. Young men, young women, old men, old women, I want to save you all of this sorrow if I can. Hell itself is truth known too late. Be wise in time. Hell itself is truth known too late. You don't have tomorrow. And the author of Hebrews, he agrees. Look at verse 15. He comes back to it again and again. He quotes Psalm 95. He wants to highlight the urgency today. He's screaming it at you and me. Now in Hebrews 4, verse 1, there's this slow but significant shift that begins to build, and it moves from history Uh, to the present, to the future. It moves from warning to encouragement. Look at the verse there. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, as in lest any of you have been too late. Now, the, the shift toward encouragement, it's triggered by a word, and the word is rest, And with this shift, we're we're actually coming back to that theme of the betterness of Jesus. The point is that the rest that Jesus promises is better than the rest that Moses and Israel anticipated as they traversed the wilderness in the book of Numbers. So I guess the question is, how is it better? And more practically, what is this rest? And, And when is this rest? Is it still the physical land of Canaan? Well, the argument is, is complicated, uh, and it takes a little bit of time to, to pick up speed. It, it begins to hit its stride uh, toward the end of verse 3, Hebrews 4, verse 3. Hopefully, you can turn there for a minute. Uh, he says, For we who have believed, we'll begin at verse 2, sorry. He says, For good news. Actually, in the Greek, it's euangelion. He's saying, for the gospel. For the gospel has been proclaimed or came to us just as to them. So he's saying right there that the gospel was proclaimed to the people of the old covenant, but it was done in a shadow form. But the message that they heard, it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so lack of faith in the gospel, that's what he's saying in verse 2, lack of faith in the gospel was their downfall. So continuing in verse 3, he says, for we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished From the foundation of the world, for he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. There's a lot going on there. It's a bit of a word, salad. What is he saying? We'll start with the obvious. The obvious is this believing the gospel today, this morning, it actually means entering God's rest now in the present. So in a sense, even though we are still pilgrimaging in this life, spiritually speaking, to the heavenly Jerusalem where we're awaiting the return of Jesus in glory, we experience rest now. It's an already but not yet. It's not rest in its fullness. We haven't experienced the Revelation 21 rest where there's no more pain or tears or sorrow or crying We're still waiting for that, but we have rest now already. Uh, You can think of what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 11, uh, that famous, probably another call to worship here, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he says. So there is rest for the taking today by faith. And so to prove the alreadyness of Jesus' rest, the author, he goes back to the Old Testament, but now he jumps over Psalm 95 And he takes us all the way to the first week of history. He brings us to Genesis 2, verse 2. And I love what he says. He says, it says somewhere. It says somewhere. We know where it is. The whole citation of Genesis 2, verse 2 says, And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Here's the point. The author is saying that the ultimate rest of the Bible was never the land of Canaan. The ultimate rest of the Bible is the rest of God. When God completed his creation, he rested. When Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross, he cried out, it is, what did he say? Finished. So from the beginning of history, mankind was created to enjoy God, to glorify Him forever, to fellowship with Him, to bask in His love. That's true rest. But that's not the same as inactivity. After all, as soon as God creates Adam and Eve, He gives them marching orders. He says, go, make babies, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, have dominion over everything. And Jesus also says, come to me, rest in me. But then he says, take my yoke. True rest is found in relationship and in Jesus, in restored relationship with God. Uh, It is found in fellowship and union with him. Psalm 95 reminds us of these truths in, in the opening verses, verses 3 through 6. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also His. The sea is His, for He made it. His hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is his, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of his hand, even Psalm 95 is going back to the first week of creation. God created everything, and He calls His people to enjoy it and him. Now if you look at Hebrews four, verses six through 10, you'll see that this argument isn't so much advanced as much as it is confirmed. Look at verses six and seven. The point is that the very existence of Psalm 95 is proof that the Old Testament anticipated a better rest. Psalm 95 is written way after the time of the Exodus. The people of Israel have settled in the promised land. They've received their rest. And yet the psalmist is saying, there's another rest. He uses the present tense. Then in verse 8, we, we suddenly read about Joshua, kind of going all over the place here. Uh, in the Greek, it's interesting. Maybe it's a play on words, but Joshua is Jesus in the Greek. And so it's, it's turning our eyes to Jesus for a moment there. And the point here, even when you read through all of Joshua, Joshua is a lesser Jesus. They enter into the promised land, but Israel is unable to, to receive a true and lasting rest. They do not drive out the enemies. Read the book of Judges. They fail again and again. And so even during the time of Joshua, even during the time of Psalm 95, the people of the Old Covenant were yearning for something better. So the author concludes here in in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, so then, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so, with that, a call to faith rings out in chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by the same sort of disobedience. Again, okay, on the face of this, this seems like a paradox. Why would we strive to rest? How does that work? But when you think about it, our, our striving to enter the rest of Jesus, it's not an attempt to earn eternal life. It's actually a daily resting in Jesus. It's a putting to death of sin, Colossians 3. It's a putting on of Christ. It's a resting from our attempts to find our own way. And so we come full circle what is the essence of true worship? You know, you can come to church on Sunday and you can sing as loud as you want, and that's good. But if your heart is faithless and, and you're living in sin, well, God will know. You can fool me You can fool your small group leaders and your elders. You can't fool Jesus. You can't fool Him if you're attempting to rest in something else. The volume of your singing cannot mask the truth from Jesus. And so that's how this passage concludes with a heavy warning look at verses 12 and 13 i'm just going to read it i'm not going to explain it for the word of god is living and active the holy spirit says it's the word of the living god it is sharper than any double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, the sight of Jesus, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Today, not tomorrow, today, if you hear his voice, rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the privilege and the freedom to be here again this morning to gather for worship and really to sing praises to your name with gusto and joy. Father, we just heard a really heavy message this morning, but it's a needed message because so often we ignore reality. We suppress the truth and we really think that our outward actions and our songs of praise are the sum total of what you require of us. But here we're reminded you want our hearts, you want us to cease our restless attempts of attaining righteousness in our own strength or finding security in this life apart from you. We have the warning of the the book of Numbers and the book of Psalms. We have so many warnings in the Scriptures. You have never been failed once or, or fooled once in all of history. You know our hearts. You know our thoughts. Psalm 139 says you know them before they're even on our mouths and on our lips. So, Father, would you disabuse us of any notions that we can fool you? Would you disabuse us of any notions that we can find rest apart from you? And would you encourage our hearts with the knowledge that the rest of Jesus is better than any other rest ever in all of history we thank you that jesus could cry out it is finished we thank you that we are redeemed from our sins in the blood of jesus we thank you that once we are justified we are always justified as Romans says there is no condemnation for those who are in jesus who are finding rest in jesus and so father we pray warm our hearts and our affections to this truth Father, we pray that we as a community would exhort one another so that none of us would be hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. Father, we we need people in our lives. We need brothers and sisters who have courage to speak the truth in love and grace, who can call us out when we aren't living in ways that are consistent with the way you have called us to live. Father, it hurts at times, but we need it so we pray that we as a community would grow closer and tighter together so that not one of us will be found to have fallen short of your rest when tomorrow comes. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Amen.